Amen. So my name is Justin. Um, I work with the kids here, zero through 18. It's the most fun you can have. Like kids are so much fun. My daughter on our way here, we're, we're driving. And in my truck, I have this song playing. He's got the whole world in his hands. And my daughter goes, song off, song off. So I pause the song. She goes, so that song said, Jesus holds the world in his hands. And I go, yes. And she goes, can you take me where we can see his hands? And I go, no. She goes, why? Like instant, why? Like she just, kids are rad because you got to have good answers and you got to be ready. Okay, here we go. And even when you teach them, like I was teaching the high school group a few weeks ago, there's banter. Like you say something, they'll say something back and you got to be ready for it. They're just witty and they're fun. So a few years ago, um, my crew was doing the chapels out at New Hope. So we would drive out there, we would do songs, we would do teaching, we would do games for all the kids at New Hope. And there was one time that we were loading all the stuff into the gym. And on the outside of the gym, on the side, there's a few basketball rims that are always available. So before school, after school, in between classes at lunch, kids could go and play basketball. Now, I hear some noise and some commotion. And so while my team's loading that in, I go over to the side and I see what's happening. There's a 1v1 game going on. And there's a bit of a crew around watching. One of the participants is an elementary schooler. And the other one is either early high school, late middle school. Just a bigger kid. To where there's just no chance. And so both are nipping at each other with very funny, witty comments. It's a Christian school, so it was all good. But they're saying really funny things to each other. And the, the older guy is, is really playing the height card, you know? Oh, here you go, buddy. Oh, no. Oh, here you go. He's kind of doing that. And the kid's laughing, the kind of laugh that's like, this is funny, but not for long, you know, that elementary schoolers can have. And like the one time he let the elementary schooler get the ball, he shoots. He goes, and the, the, the bigger boy just hits it out of the air like, bang. He's like, yeah. Like, that's the card he's playing. Just, just mean you know? And so that's what he's doing. So I'm sitting there going, I should probably get involved. And before I can, the middle, the, the, the elementary schooler, he's over it. He's had enough. So he's going to play the only card he can. It's the, the playground trump card. I think when you're in that kind of argument state, he calls on the name of the one person in his life when he's had obstacles or hard things, the person who could fix it, the person who's always in charge, who's stronger than him, who loves him, who's got his back, he points at the kid and he goes, my dad could beat up your dad. That's what he throws out. My dad could beat up your dad. And just everyone's losing at this point. Like, that's just the funniest thing. Because think about what he's saying. He's saying, you think you're better at me than basketball? All right, you get your dad here. I'm getting my dad here. Last dad standing, his kid's the better basketball player. That's the argument. Like, it doesn't make any sense, but it's just such... It, how many of you have heard a kid say that? Like, that's a familiar thing that we've heard kids say. My dad could beat up your dad. And Jesus, what he says to his disciples, what he says to his people is, if you do not change and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's so much in that, but part of it, I think, is this attitude of, my dad could beat up your dad. Where when this kid was faced with an opponent that he couldn't overcome, something totally out of his league, I can't do anything about this, his mind immediately went to someone bigger than him who loves him and is thinking, if I could just get him here, I'd have victory. And even if his bigger guy was here, I'd still have victory, because my dad could beat up his dad. I believe 
we're supposed to have that same attitude as believers, that we go into situations, we face obstacles with an attitude of, oh, my dad could beat up your dad. Like my, my dad's here. My dad's, I know who's for me is greater than he is in the world. And something happens, I think, as we get older, where we transition from kids who are vulnerable, who need help, who are dependent on someone greater than us. We become more independent. We want to do things our own. I got this. I got it under control. And then we face failure and we face obstacles and eventually we just go, ah, I just, I can't do it. I just can't do it anymore. So either you give up or you call on someone who's greater than you and you say, I, I need my dad here. I need to get my dad involved. For me, as I was studying Judges chapter 10, that kept coming to my mind. My dad could beat up your dad. But before we can really jump into Judges chapter 10, we got to, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We have to do a little bit of recap so you can get the story because Judges 10 begins on the tail end of a whole narrative that's been happening where you had this guy named Gideon. And Gideon, whether it was false humility or, or true humility, it doesn't matter. He, God comes to him and says, hey, I need you to lead an army to get the Moabites out of here. And he goes, not me. I'm going to list for you all the reasons it's not me. And God goes, yeah, but I'll be with you. And so Gideon goes and he tests God over and over again. Going, God, I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm scared. I'm frightened. God reassures him. God meets him where he's at and confirms, no, this is what you're doing. And so Gideon, through talking with God, eventually does God's plan where he's holding the torches. They break the clay pots. They blow the trumpets. And the enemy is so confounded, confused by what God is doing. They basically defeat themselves and they run off and Gideon chases after them. And about that point, Things change for Gideon. He's no longer talking to the Lord. Instead, he's reached this point where he's self-assured. I can do this. Oh, I've got this. I don't need to go to the Lord with this. This is, this is my problem now. I'll do this. And he runs after the people. He, he just basically ends the whole chapter being all about him. And he comes back home and he tells people, no, 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 no. I don't want to be king. Don't treat me like king. But he wants all the king's stuff. He wants to get a little bit of everyone's money. He wants to tax the people. He ends up having a harem of women. He ends up making this idol so that everyone can remember the great, awesome thing that Gideon did. He has 70 sons from all those women, and one of those sons, his name is Abimelech. And Abimelech is just a bad dude. There's a whole chapter last week we looked at just devoted to him, where Abimelech just causes chaos and destruction in Israel. He takes his brothers and one by one executes them so that there's no one to contest his position as the new ruling leader of Israel. He gets together just these worthless men and has this militia and is just causing destruction and destruction and chaos and disorder until finally he's besieging this tower and a woman throws a giant stone on his head and just crushes his skull. And he falls down and says, don't let a woman kill me. And another guy kills him. And that's the end of his reign. Just total disorder. That was the last thing that we looked at. Absolute disorder, chaos. Israel's not in a good place right now, right? Things aren't going good. And so our chapter opens like this. After Abimelech, after all that has just happened, all the disorder, all the, the, the state that Israel must be in right now, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. 
And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. That's all you get. So you just got a whole chapter about this guy raising chaos. In fact, there's a person who's a commentator who calls him the destroyer of Israel, just absolutely wreaking havoc. He gets a whole chapter, but the guy who comes next only gets this tiny little blurb about him. And so all you can do is really infer information from it. Okay, well, what, what can we gather? Well, he was raised up to save Israel and his name was Tola. And names in the Old Testament, they had a little bit of bearing on who this person is. So you can kind of get an idea of what they're supposed to be, like Moses. So Moses, his name means drawn out. Baby put into the Nile, floated down the Nile. He was drawn out and they went, oh, your name will be Moses. That means drawn out. And Caleb, Caleb means faithful, devoted, wholehearted, brave. Jesus or Joshua means Yahweh is my salvation. So these names, they have some meaning, right? And so this dude named Tola, interestingly, his name is synonymous with worm or maggot. Yeah. So just imagine that, right? Like you're, in, you're at a family reunion. Oh yeah, these are my kids. Wholehearted devotion. Yahweh's my salvation. Maggot. And all, the whole family's like, yeah, I see it. You know, like that's, that's Tola. So that's the guy. That's the guy that's raised up to save. And I think honestly, if in every single scenario you're in where someone calls out your name, hey maggot, what do you think about this? You're always going to start, I think, every situation with a little bit of humility. You're going to come in no matter what you're at with this, that's my name. And his name basically means vulnerable, weak, defenseless. That's what a worm, that's what a maggot is. They need something greater than themselves. And what's interesting that you see from all of the real great people in the Bible is there's this pairing of two characteristics. You see this absolute humility, this complete sense of, I can't do this, like Moses, where Moses, God comes to him and says, hey, I need you to go to back to Egypt and I'm going to use you to let my people go. I'm going to set my people free. And Moses goes, yeah, no, you got the wrong guy. And I'm going to list for you all the reasons why. Number one, I don't speak very well. God goes, yeah, I'll be with you. Okay, that didn't work. Uh, number two, I'm a murderer, right? That, normally that's a disqualifier. Like if I've ever harassed you for the kids wing, being like, hey man, I really need someone to teach the kindergarten this week. And you're like, ah, it's not me. You know, I don't speak very well. I'll be like, no, don't worry. Because I'll meet with you. I'll, sh I'll show you how to teach. We'll, we'll do this together. I'll be in the room. It'll be great. If you follow it up with, I've killed somebody. Then I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? I got it. We'll find someone. No big deal, right? That's what Moses is hoping for here. Like, oh, I've killed somebody. You know, is that, that going to do anything? God goes, nope, I'll, I'll be with you. And so there's this humility amongst God's people. But then what happens is the longer that they walk with God and they know God, there becomes this boldness attached to them where eventually as Moses meets with Pharaoh, he becomes more and more emboldened, not because anything has changed with him. He knows it's not him, but he knows who's for him. He knows Pharaoh's gods and he goes, yeah, my dad could beat up your dad. I'm seeing it. Every week when I stand here in front of you and I tell you, let my people go and you say no, my dad comes in and kicks butt. Like that's his attitude as he starts to get with Pharaoh's. He knows he's humble. Uh, this isn't me. This isn't anything I can do of myself. But he's got this boldness and it lasts to the end of his life to where 
most likely Joshua writes about him, Moses was the most humble man in all the earth. I mean, you look at David, right? David shows up to fight Goliath, where David, soaking wet, weighs 80 pounds. And Goliath, the Bible tells us that his jacket weighed 300 pounds. Okay, so you have an absolute monster who was born and bred to be a warrior, fighter, killer. And you have David, a child. No one's putting money on David in this scenario, right? Everyone's looking at it going, no way. But here's how David shows up. David is sent by his dad to look after his brothers. He shows up on the battlefield and he hears Goliath walking around saying, your God is so puny, he's gonna give, us, give you into our hands. That's what he's calling out. He's more than dissing Israel. He's dissing Israel's God. And David walks out and he sees all the people not responding to that. And he goes, yeah, I'm just a kid, but my dad can beat up his dad. And so he gets into the fight. And guess what? God shows up and he fights and it's done. Like it doesn't matter who David is because he knows who's with him. So the believer, the the person that God wants to use mightily, they're supposed to have, as Matt calls, a very humble swagger where you can walk into a scenario totally emboldened. There's this obstacle in front of you. Hey, it's not me, but I know who's got my back. I know who loves me. I know who's invested in me. And the gospel gives you that where you know, man, I'm, I'm broken. There's nothing I could do that could ever make me right with God. There's a, there has to be a humility with you. But there's also a boldness because you've been adopted into God's family because of the work of Jesus. And you can come boldly to the throne of grace in your time of need. And there's a confidence that's given to you because of Jesus. And they're paired. They're always together. What the believer's supposed to have, what we're supposed to have, how we're supposed to lead people is we're supposed to have this humility that's mixed with boldness. Do you look out in our world, in our education system, in our media, in the things happening even in this valley, and you see things that are disordered or chaotic or in a state that they shouldn't be in? Do you feel that as you hear the things that your kids are being taught or your grandkids are being taught or what's being taught? Do you feel that when you look at different things politically? Do you feel that when you see how people do relationships? Man, we need a community of people who lead with a humility mixed with boldness, with a humble swagger, who go, you know what, I don't have it all together, but I know the one who does, and we can seek him together, and we can see him do something great. Leading in this way, what it does is it paves the way for future generations to to continue in peace and in prosperity. Because look what happens. In verse two, in verse one, it tells you that after Abimelech, Tola was raised up to save Israel. And he judged for 23 years. But the next person after him arose Jair, the Gildanite, who judged Israel 22 years. He didn't have to save. Israel was saved by someone who was humble and bold and allowed the next generation to follow after him. They just, all they had to do was govern And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died when he was buried in Cammon. So all we know about this guy, short little blurb too, is he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys 
and ruled over 30 cities. What we're supposed to get from that is whenever a king would run into a city and he was going to dominate it, he was going to put it under submission to him. He would come in riding a stallion. We're going to war. When he wanted to come into a city and it's a time of peace and this is just leisure and hey, how's it going? He'd come in riding a donkey. The picture here is what we're supposed to see is this is a time of just total peace. And then for Jair to be able to give his sons 30 donkeys, trying to give his sons 30 cities to govern over and partner with him in, shows us that things are going really well in Israel right now. There's a time of peace and there's a time of prosperity. The chaos for the moment has gone. When you have leaders who lead in humility and in boldness, and it's not all about me, but it's all about Jesus, it sets up the next generation to follow in your footsteps really, really well. And they will experience the kind of, hopefully, the chaos that you had to weather through and get delivered from. But just like what the theme of Judges seems to be, there's this period of rest, and then there's sin, and then there's oppression, and then there's deliverance. And so now after the season of rest, we're gonna see the sin that Israel gets themselves into. It's verse six. The people of Israel again did what, <laughs> again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. He just listed a bunch of gods. Like normally it's, hey, they serve the gods of the Moabites, and so the Moabites moved in. They, hey, they serve the gods of the Canaanites, and the Canaanites moved in. This takes painstaking time to say they went full send. They went all in. They started serving all the different gods, got involved with every single one of them. Verse seven, so the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Am Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So here's what happens. The people, they start pursuing all these other gods. They start serving them, and whatever they serve, they end up becoming enslaved to. And before, like with Gideon, there's one group that oppresses one area of Israel. And so God raises up a deliverer, and Gideon gets the Moabites out and the Ephraim, the people of Ephraim come to him and they go, hey, why didn't you get us involved? That's not the case anymore. It lets us know, yeah, it even got to Judah and it got to Benjamin and it got to Ephraim. Now the enemy has permeated Israel. Now they're at your house. They're in the city. There's no getting away from it. It's here. Man, it used to be like my grandparents, I was talking with them they were like, oh yeah, our friends, when we were just out of college, they were gonna go start a, a little place they could live, go buy some land in the middle of nowhere. Everyone was gonna pool their money together and they were just gonna live in this commune. And I'm like, I'm so happy you didn't. But that's what they were gonna do. That's what they were thinking of doing, to get away from the things that were happening in San Diego at the time. 
You know, a lot of people ended up in Grants Pass because they just want to get away from the stuff happening in the bigger cities. Like, I just got to get my kids out of this culture. I don't like where we're at. You can't do that anymore. Right now with cell phones, with social media, with YouTube, with whatever, the things that you used to be able to say, I'm going to get away from this city. I'm going to distance myself from that. You can't distance yourself anymore. Now it's in your home. Now the enemy has a way to get where you're at, wherever you're at. It's in our houses. Verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you. And you cried out to me and I saved you from your hand. And you see, you can look at the Israelites and go, are you crazy? You're gonna serve these other gods? God says, don't you remember how I delivered you from all of these things? Why do you keep doing this? Do you think Israel remembers all the different ways that God has saved them? Totally. But here's what God says. He says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will serve you, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in this time of your distress. Rough. Just brutal, right? And what's funny is when we read these stories and we look at the Israelites, who they, they go after these other gods and they serve these other things, and we just go, you're crazy. Especially you look at gods like the God of the Moabites, who would be Moloch, that you would sacrifice your children to. To get what you want, you'd go, that's barbaric. That's insane. We don't do that today, do we? And in a way, we do. So there's this, the gods look different than they did back then. We don't have an altar that we go to necessarily to serve other gods, but there are things that we put in the place of God all of the time. The way Augustine puts it is anything that you love, anything that's really important to you can get disordered in your life and cause destruction everywhere else in your life. And they're usually really good things. Like your career is a really, really good thing. And relationships are a really good thing. Your wife, your kids. Financial security is a really good thing. Physical attractiveness, affirmation from other people, what other people think of you. Those are all normally really good things, but when they get disordered in your life, when it becomes something where I have to serve that, just like the Israelites serve these other gods, whatever you serve, it will rule you. It will oppress you. And God does not want to be your number two. God can't be anyone's number two. You and I were created to walk and talk with God every single day. He's supposed to be our number one love. But if we have anything else disordered, everything else falls apart. So, okay, do people sacrifice kids today? Absolutely. There are so many jobs that if you go into careers where you will be told straight up, if you want to succeed here, you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to choose to come in at inopportune times when things are going on with your family. You're going to have to put away stuff so that you can do well here. We're going to have to see you putting in the time, the effort, the willingness to sacrifice if you want to be here. It happens all of the time. And it's not until later when the kids grow up and there's a lot of bitterness and there's a lot of anger that things blow up. And guess what? Whatever you disorder, 
The things you put out of order are gonna affect your number one. Sacrificing your kids, allowing that bitterness to root in your family, that's gonna affect your career, that's gonna affect your job, it's gonna affect your life. God does not want to be anything other than number one. And God even says, you put me as number one. And then if you don't live with your wife, husbands, in an understanding way, I'm not gonna hear your prayers. So if God's number one, you should go, well, shoot, then my wife is number two. And then God wants your kids to be number three. Then everything else will just file in order. Everything else will find its spot once you get those things in place. But God does not want any other spot in your life but number one. And he certainly does not wanna be your search and rescue call. Like the Israelites have let him be. He goes, okay, you don't like the spot you're in? Stop calling to me then. You're so interested in the number one thing you do every morning is to go and serve these other gods. And the last thing you do at night is think about these other gods. Why don't you go cry out to them in your distress? See how they save you. There's this guy, his name is Jimmy. He works at Tom, Tom's Auto. And he's my guy because I've been having issues with my truck. And I bring my truck to, to Tom's Auto and I see Jimmy and I go, dude, can you help me? He fits me in, he's just the man. And he works on it and he helps me out. And every time I leave, in the back of my head, I think, I hope I never see Jimmy again. You know what I mean? That's my attitude. And I'm like, I love him. I hope I never have to see you again. And man, that's how we, we can often treat our relationship with God. When we're in time of need, when we're in distress, when we're in a lifeboat and it just seems like nothing is going right, we go to God going, okay, God, save me. We shoot our signal flare. God, I need help. And God saves and God delivers and then we get out of it and we go, man, I hope I never have to do that again. I hope I never have to pray that way again. I hope I, we don't say it outright, but it's in there because we want to go back to living the way we used to live and not reorder our life. And God says, I'm, I don't want that relationship. I'm not here to be your search and rescue or your signal, your, uh, your flare savior. I'm here to be your father. God has adopted us as his kids and he wants us to approach him in that way where we can say, dad, where we call him our dad. And then when there's these obstacles that face us, we can say, okay, dad, I trust you. I'm in the game instead of, okay, God, I don't know what to do. I need help. This panic that the Israelites find themselves in. But here's what's so interesting about the Israelites. Here's what they do. Verse 15. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Here's what they say. They go, God, we've sinned. We know we've messed up. Do whatever you want to us. Only please let it be deliverance. You see that? Isn't that fun? He says, hey, do whatever you need to do. You, you can forsake us. You can save us. Let's have it be save us, if we could. That's, how they, that's what they say to him. And then, verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Here's what the Israelites do. The Israelites, they pray to God. God, please save us. Please save us. They put away the other gods they start serving God. They reorder their life. They say, okay, God, we're gonna make you number one. We're gonna do this. We're going to follow you the way you want us to follow you. And God, because they know this about God, they know he's good. They know that God has revealed himself to his people as being a God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, 
abounding in faithful love. They know that about God. And so they go, okay, God, we're going to follow you. And here's the great thing about our God is he did not wait for their repentance to be right or for them to reorder things. He didn't wait for the way they confessed things to be sincere. Instead, that's not what we have to trust in or hope in. Man, I hope I prayed that prayer right. Man, I hope I was sincere when I confessed. Man, I hope I checked all the boxes. It's God grows impatient with the suffering of his people. Instead of trusting in anything that we can do, we can trust in God's great compassion for us. That's everything. You know, when Jesus shows up in Mark, right off the get-go, it says that Jesus is on the scene and he's preaching the gospel, which is so funny because for me, the gospel was always the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that it? Isn't that the gospel, death, burial? Well, hold on. Jesus, chapter one, is preaching the gospel. So what is it? It's that God is impatient with the suffering of his people is incredibly compassionate towards his people and does not want to see them continue in the way that they will. So God will come to his people. He will condescend down to their level and live the humble life that you and I are supposed to live. That God, the creator of the entire universe, would humble himself to live amongst his people, but boldly walk into every situation knowing fully this is what God has me doing today loving these people, caring for these people, even the outcast, the unimportant. You look at Tola and he's only got two verses about him, little nothing of a guy. A lot of times we think serving God is gonna look like Moses or David where you get chapter after chapter after verse. Oh, I gotta have this big story. I have to do something impressive to serve God. Or we think I've gotta have this huge testimony. Like I remember going to churches when I was a kid and they'd have a guest speaker come up and he would just tell you about all the jacked stuff he did. And I'd just not go, guess I can't be used by God. Or if I want to get used by God, I got to get into addiction and that's going to be costly. You know, like that's kind of how it was sold to me. And told him, man, thank the Lord that he doesn't have more than two verses because that means he didn't need it. We didn't have to hear about this, the junk he had to overcome. He just was humbly and bold and he served the Lord, if you're in a spot where you're like, man, I don't have this crazy testimony, great. You haven't murdered anyone. I'll see you in the kid's wing. Like, that's where I want you. you know, God wants to use you mightily today. You know, you think about like, what is a game-changing thing for our community that God wants to see? What does God value? He says, this is what I want my people to do. God spells it out very clearly. To care for widows and orphans in their time of need. I said earlier, there's a bunch of kids who come to church that do not have godly moms or dads. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, really says the people who come to church are supposed to take that role for those kind of kids. There's so many kids here who do not have a godly male influence in their life. Some of them don't even have a male influence in their life. And they'll be willing to take anyone who will invest in them and mentor them. And a lot of times the wrong people will get involved. And we need humble, bold leaders who say, you know what, maybe I'm not the right guy, but I know my dad and I can trust him in it. And so I'm going to seek the Lord. And if this is what God is leading me to do, I'm going to do it. I have a volunteer right now in the kid's wing who I would every week press him. Hey, I really need you back there. He goes, that's not me. That's not me. That's not what I'm supposed to do. He's back there. And he's like one of the best because he comes into everything with this humility. I'm the wrong guy here, but this boldness, I know it's right and I know it's wrong. That's all it takes. 
In most situations, in caring for kids, but also in your workplace, in your career, in your relationships, it's having humility to say, I'm a jacked up person too. I don't have everything right. I'm a sinner. And the boldness to say, I know who my God is. I know what he wants for me. I know what he wants what's best for you. I can lead you in that way. I can tell you all about him. God can deliver you from the stuff that you're experiencing right now. God wants us to go into situations like that. So Jesus, when he's walking around, he goes into everything in complete humility. He allows himself to become low for you and me, but acts in total boldness, knowing confidently, this is what God has me doing today. Even if it means upsetting my whole schedule to stay for one woman who's at a well by herself, who's been dejected and left out, normally no one would write a story about that. But Jesus will spend time with her because God says, that's really important to me. That's my daughter. I love her. I care for her. I want her. I want her to know that I'm her dad. And whatever obstacle she's facing, I'll get in the ring and my dad can beat up their dad. That's the kind of people that God wants. The humble, bold leaders that will let people know, do you know your dad? Because he wants to know you and he wants to be number one in your life. And the chapter ends with this. Then the Ammonites were called to arms. And they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They cry out for a deliverer. They set the stage for chapter 11 where God is going to redeem and set his people free. And this is often a question that's asked of God's people. Who's the man? Who's the person? Where God says he's looking for someone to stand in the gap. Where God says, I'm looking over, who who am I going to send? Who shall I send out? And waiting for someone to say, here I am, send me. Who will go out into the land and seek the betterment for for Grant's Pass? And you know what? The people who do that, it's super scary. We have someone in our community, in our body, who in humility yet in boldness said, hey, there's stuff I don't like happening out there, so I'm going to do what I believe God has called me to do, what I believe is right. And you know what happened? Absolutely attacked by the enemy, lost her job. I think lost her job. We'll see. But stuff happened. The enemy attacked full on. And what I love is her countenance. Whenever I see her, she's always just like, yeah, I know who my dad is. It's going to be good. Whatever God's got planned for me, if the enemy wants to take away that job, that must not be the job God wants me to have. No problem. God's going to open up doors for me. Man, do you see that humble boldness? Hey, my whole life, my whole value, all my significance wasn't sucked into that one job. Thank goodness, because that can get taken away. My whole life, all my significance isn't sucked into what people think of me, because thank goodness, that can get taken away. It's not sucked into whatever, any idol, any God we can put it into. If you reorder your life correctly, you'll be able to enter into anything that God calls you into with humbleness and with boldness. And you'll be able to say to God, here I am, send me. I want to get involved. I see chaos in our community and I want to see it changed. I believe in every generation, God is looking for people who he will say, who's going to stand in the gap? 
Who's going to be the, the leader, the deliverer, the person that I call to reorder chaos? Who's going to partner with me to fight against what the enemy is doing in the lives of our kids, in the lives of the people who are married in our community, at our workplaces, at our schools, wherever God has placed you? Who's going to step in in humility and in boldness and say, I know who my dad is, and my dad can beat their dad, so I'm getting involved. You have the opportunity today, if your life is in disorder, if you have put things in God's place, to reorder. Take count of the things that really matter because any other thing that you put in God's place is only gonna break your heart. It's only gonna leave you empty. It's only gonna leave you wanting. It's gonna leave you distressed and in need of a deliverer. And God does not wanna see his people suffer that way. You have the opportunity today to reorder. And man, what would it look like if every single one of us in here did that. We took this moment, we reordered our life in the way that God wants us to, and we said, okay, God, I'm broken. God, you know my form, you know my mistakes, you know my past, you know where I've been, but I also know that you want me to get in the game with you, that you want me to partner with you to do amazing things here in Grant's Pass. I know that there are kids that you want me to get connected with. I know that there's marriages who are hurting that I can give wisdom to and part information on I know that there's things happening, there's needs in this body that you have specifically called me here tonight to get involved with. What would it look like if we all said, yeah, my dad can beat up the enemy? What if we all said, whatever obstacle is in my way, the force that's behind me, the God that's with me is greater than he who's in the world. And I said, Jesus, I'm in today. I think it would fundamentally change Grant's Pass. It'd be a completely different valley to live in. And we have the opportunity to do that this day. So Jesus, we pray that we would be emboldened, that we would be people who, in humility, know our weaknesses, know that we, we don't do anything hoping that we would get glory or that we would get no, big pages written about us, big stories in the news, but we also pray that our humility would not overcome us into timidness, and Lord, we pray that we'd be bold, but that our boldness wouldn't take over and we become people who are so self-assured that we don't need you anymore. Jesus, help us to partner with you in the work that you're doing in Grants Pass, fighting desperately for the lives of kids, fighting desperately to restore and renew marriages. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing here at Edgewater. Help us to be the leaders that you've called us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.